wrapping our series, but I've kind of renamed this one for our new section of material. Who is this King of Glory? The book of Joshua, we'll get into that, but we'll be in Joshua chapter 10, so go ahead and start turning there. I'm going to be really, really transparent with you today because I think this is something that many of us in our congregation are dealing with. There has been this over the past few months an exceedingly heavy pressure when it comes to thinking about sin in my life. God has really opened my eyes to the devastation of the effects of sin in the personal lives of people. I, um, I've been doing a lot of counseling, and in my counseling, I see how desperate people are for hope. And as we go through life together, we see that sin devastates families. It destroys families from the inside out. We see our children choose directions that we would never have chosen for them. It bleeds into sleepless nights for parents. I've seen addictions that just don't seem to go away and that, that people can't seem to break free from, and it just continues to wreck and cause havoc over, over and over and over again. And we see the exceeding frustration that happens in a family, broken homes because of sin's wickedness and its deceitfulness. And I've just been feeling overwhelmed with that. And not only that, but then my own personal sin, even things that I would consider little things, maybe talking sharply to my children, has sparked in me a greater anguish over the last few months. Have you guys experienced that recently? Or maybe even just looking at the country and seeing how the wickedness of sin is destroying aspects of our society or our community. We see, um, we've seen in the news recently in Sierra Vista how some people's choices have led to the death of other people. And people are destroyed. So sin is, is a heavy topic. But God in his providence and his care for us has not left us without hope. And Joshua chapter 10 is one of those passages that brings me great hope. And I hope it brings you great hope because I was greatly encouraged studying it over the last couple of weeks. And I hope that you will also benefit from it as well. So turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Joshua chapter 10. And we're picking up where we left off. This is the Israelites' journey into Canaan. They're going to, they're in, in, a, in a mode of conquest right now. They're in the southern part of Canaan. They're taking the promised land that God had promised them. And they are, they are entering in. Uh, Moses has handed the mantle, the leadership mantle, off to Joshua and made him the leader. And Joshua is invading the promised land by God's um, help. And we saw a, lot, a few years, about a year ago almost, it's been a year, that Joshua took the Israelites across the Jordan River, and that Jordan River was split. God opened the river for them to cross on dry land. Then they reached Jericho, and Jericho was a massive city for a people, the Israelites, who had no modern training or 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 contemporary training in combat. And so now they had siege warfare ahead of them, yet God destroyed the walls and gave them the city of Jericho. 
But then in their conquest, they sinned. And somebody stole some extra stuff, put it in their tent, and we saw how sin caused a defeat when they went against the city of Ai. God then re-encouraged them after the repentance process, and they were able to conquer Ai. Finally, they do something silly. Gideon, or sorry, Gibeon tricks them. Gibeon, the Gibeonites, they're neighbors, they have a powerful city, but they're scared of the Israelites. They know the God of Israel is powerful, and so they have decided to dress up like far wanderers. They put on dirty clothes and old wineskins, and they come and they say, we're from far away and we want to make a peace treaty, because they know God had forbidden the Israelites from making any covenants or peace treaties in the land. And so the Gibeonites tricked them, they make a peace treaty, they make a covenant, and now they find out, and then the Israelites agree to honor that and make them essentially their slaves, but they promise not to destroy them totally like was predicted or, or was planned. And so now we have what happens next. What happens to the Gibeonites who have been handed over to God to be woodcutters and water carriers for the temple? Joshua 10 begins in verse 1, obviously. Now, King Adonizedek of Jerusalem heard that Joshua had captured Ai and completely destroyed it, treating Ai and its king as he had Jericho and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were living among them. So Adonizedek and his people were greatly alarmed because Gibeon was a large city like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all its men were, warrior, were, were warriors. Therefore, King Adonizedek in Jerusalem sent word to King Hoham of Hebron, King Piram of Jarmuth, and King Japhia, I promise I practiced this, of, of Lachis, and the king of Debar of Eglon, saying, Come up and help me. We will attack Gibeon because they have made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. So the five Amorite kings, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces to advanced with all their armies, besieged Gibeon, and fought against it. Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal, Don't give up on your servants. Come quickly and save us. Help us from all the Amorite kings living in the hill country have joined together or joined forces against us. So Joshua and all his troops, including all his best soldiers, came from Gilgal. The Lord said to Joshua, this is verse 8, Do not be afraid of them, for I have handed them over to you. Not one of them will be able to stand against you. So Joshua caught them by surprise after marching all night from Gilgal the Lord threw into confusion before Israel. He defeated them in a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them through the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Mekdah. As, as they fled before Israel, the Lord threw large hailstones on them from the sky along the descent of Beth Horon all the way to Azekah, and they died. More of them died from the hail than the Israelites killed with the sword. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to the Israelites, Joshua spoke to the, to the Lord in the presence of Israel. Son, stand still over Gibeon and the moon 
over the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still. The moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on its enemies. Isn't this written in the book of Jashar? So the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed its setting almost a full day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord listened to a man because the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. Let us pray. Father, as your word shows us that you are a God who fights for his people, that you do miracles and you answer prayer. Lord, we need to understand you as the Lord strong and mighty. We need to understand who is this King of glory. And Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and our eyes as we see this, that, that we don't fight this battle of life on our own, but that you are with us. And that we can serve you with victory and joy, and we don't have to be downtrodden and discouraged. Lord, we know, uh, you know, everything that's going on in the hearts of this congregation. You know what they need to hear. So, Father, I pray that your word would speak truth to their hearts, that you would bind up those who are hurting, that you would encourage and break free the captives, that you would help us to be a people after your own heart. Father, I pray for myself as I have been exceedingly burdened by the deceitfulness and wickedness of sin that I see around me and within me. Father, I am so thankful that we were able to do communion today to remember the shed blood of Christ and the broken body of Christ that you, for us. Lord, I pray that your spirit works in our hearts today, that we would have ears to, ear, to hear and eyes to see, that we would be encouraged by your word today, and that we would not be weak in the knees, but we would sound the horn of victory because you have already beat the enemy. You have defeated the foe, and we are fighting against a foe who has been defanged. Father, we thank you for Christ. And all these things, all God's people said, amen. So when we started studying Joshua last year, I mentioned that the book of Joshua is more than just a book of history. It's not just a bunch of stories that have been compiled so that the Israelites understood where they came from. It's not like what we would do when we study the Revolutionary War. But this is something that teaches us theology. The purpose of the book of Joshua is to teach us theology. And that theology is to understand who is this king of glory. Who is he? Who is the one that has brought them from the, the captivity in Egypt to this Israel? And if you were an Israelite reading this, you would understand that Old Testament narratives have a purpose. And the purpose is for you to understand who God really is. And I think we're going to see the character of God as we study this. We also see how people respond to this character of God in good and bad ways or, or respond well or poorly. So we learn a lot about human nature in the Old Testament, but we also learn about the character of God. And that's what I really want us to hone in on today because this passage has been used and abused by many people. People have taken this passage to mean things that it does not mean. And so as you look at it, we need to understand the setup. And to understand the setup, we have to have a purpose statement for this sermon. The sermon today is, who fights for you? Is the question, it's the title. And the purpose statement is, when you are pulled in every direction, you can have hope. 
because the Lord fights for you and answers prayers. Do you feel pulled in every direction? Do you feel exhausted from living a life that maybe didn't go the way you planned? That maybe was harder than you thought? When you were in high school, did you have big dreams? You're going to marry the man or woman of your dreams. You're going to have a whole bunch of kids, well, maybe two and a half. And you're going to have the perfect job. And you were going to have a nice car. And you were going to do cool things. You're going to go to Europe in the summer. And you're going to have vacations at the beach. But in the end, you end up in a, a one-bedroom condo, divorced, multiple kids. Maybe you've got an addiction of some kind. And your life is, is now not what you thought it would be. And this is something that gives us hope. So let's go ahead and look. The setup, we need to understand how and where this is taking place. So somebody said that this is taking place in the Dixie of Canaan, in the south of Canaan. And I got a map, so Sabine, don't worry, I got the controller. I didn't tell, I didn't tell you in advance what I'm doing, and if it works, we'll be good. Can you advance the slide because my controller doesn't work? There we go. But I got a laser pointer. So... You can see here we have the map. So this is the Dead Sea. And if you remember, the Jordan River goes up, and there's the Sea of Galilee where Jesus did a lot of his ministry. So what we have here is the battlefield. And what we have is the Israelites have taken Jericho. Ai is probably about here. The majority of their forces are likely right here. And then you have these five kings who own five cities. And this is, they've made a confederation because Gibeon, this city right here, has turned and went with the Israelites. So you see the problem? If the Israelites continue on their path, they have now cut Canaan in two. And so they're in a tight spot. So these people down here, they have banded together. You have the cities that have gathered together, and then they went and have begun to attack Gibeon. And the Israelites are called on to come down and fight. And then they chase them all the way around this way. So now you have a general idea of what's happening. And what we see is that these five kings are worried. So in verses 1 through 5, we have the setup. We have these five kings are recognizing the tactical situation is not going to be favorable if they allow the Israelites unfettered access. And in fact, they were scared of them when they took over Jericho. But when they lost at Ai, the people in the region were not so scared anymore because the Israelites could be defeated. And then they took over Ai, and now the Gibeonites have handed themselves over. And so in verses 1, we have these five kings. We have the king, I'm not going to say their names all over again, but just recognize there are five Amorite kings. And these kings are the five kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. This is a mighty, a mighty foe. These are a lot of armies. And all these armies have banded together to keep Israel from taking over the promised land. And then we see this in verse 5. So the five Amorite kings, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, and Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces, advanced. Now look at how the word is used here. With all their armies, besieged Gibeon and fought against it. So, the, so think about the word all. They have put all their forces in one basket. 
If you are a tactical person in this room, if you have been in the military and you've had to study small unit and large unit tactics, you can recognize either one of two things. Either this is a bad situation for the Israelites or an opportunity. It's a bad situation because the Israelites are vastly outnumbered. Again, the Israelites are not trained in warfare necessarily. And so they have this army that's against them that seems impenetrable, that seems overwhelming. Um, if you have ever read The Hobbit, at the end you have the Battle of Five Armies. And it seems like all these armies are against the dwarves that are stuck in Smog's treasure palace. And they don't have a way of escape. And then, next thing you know, all these other reinforcements start to arrive. But we don't see that here. What we see is that the Gibeonites, the men of Gibeon in verse 6, come running. The men of Gibeon. Now remember who these men are. They're deceitful men. They came under the impression that they were from a faraway land, and they came to the Israelites and made a peace treaty, which God had told the Israelites not to do in the first place. So, man, if I was the Israelites, I probably would be like, all right, have fun with that. You go ahead and fight that army by yourself. You deserve. You get what you deserve. But that's not what we see. They run to Joshua for help. And in verse 7, we see the response. So Joshua and all his troops, including all his best soldiers, came from Gilgal. Do you hear that? So Joshua gathers all his armies. So now we got two armies. All of the Amorites, the five kings of Amorite, and we have all of the people from Joshua, the Israelites, the armies from Joshua. And they are now about to do battle. Is there some tension in this story so far? What is going to happen? Because last time they fought Ai without the Lord's permission, they only took a little bit of their armies, and they lost, and they were devastated. So what's going to happen? Well, we see our second point. The Lord fights for you. In verse 8, the Lord said to Joshua, every time you see this in Joshua, it's a powerful moment. Because the first thing we saw was God or an angel of the Lord. We talked about this last, uh, last year. I know we've all forgotten, was dressed in his war paraphernalia, and he came and he talked to Joshua and said, I am the divine warrior. I am the Lord. I will fight for you as you enter into Israel, or to Canaan at that time. And so we see the God fights for you. Verse 8, he says, The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for I have handed them over to you. Not one of them will be able to stand against you. If you think about that, that's a, an encouraging statement. But the forces arrayed against them are overwhelming. So when we think about our lives, what is arrayed against you? When God has asked you to do something, when I was called to ministry, I was not wanting to do that. Right? I said, God, you've got the wrong man. I am not equipped for this. And then I came to Sierra Vista Baptist Church. And everyone here loves me and cared for me. But I didn't know if we were going to succeed, did I? And you guys didn't know if we were going to succeed either. And you have had things come up against you in your personal life, but also in your church life. And it seemed like the deck was stacked against us, didn't it? But we walked in faith, and we obeyed the Lord. And so this is what Joshua does. But Joshua doesn't just sit on his hands. The Lord says, I'm going to fight for you. He's like, all right, God, have a good time. I'll have the Gatorade in the back, and we'll celebrate later. Right? No, he says, okay. So he goes and marches all night. He gets up. 
This is what I love about Joshua. Every time the Lord says, I will be with you, he either A, gets up really early in the morning and gets his day started, or he goes and he works his bottom off to go and make this happen. Do you see how this is working? So in our lives, how often do we say, well, God says he'll prosper me, so I'm just going to let this happen. I'll sit here and play video games until it works. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to action. So God being a divine warrior, the one who fights for us, is also leads us to get off our rear ends and to get to working. And so that's what we see here. So the divine warrior will fight for them. Joshua caught them by surprise after marching all night from Gilgal. Then verse 10, we see what God does. When you think about God giving assurance, there's something you should consider. What does it mean to have assurance, right? Does, does Jesus, meek and mild, provide you with assurance of victory? What does it look like to have assurance that God will fight for you in the right things? We'll talk about it. We're going to have questions later. Joshua marches all night, ambushes them. One thing I want you to take away from this is that God's promise of provision never nullifies man's responsibility. You always have a responsibility to act, to be involved, not on your own strength or your own ability, because this, is, this could be exhausting to you. You may feel like the odds are stacked against you. You may feel like your marriage may not hold out. You may feel like your kids are going to turn out terrible, and you may feel overwhelmed. But if the Lord says he will fight for you, What does that mean that you need to do? That means you get busy. That means you get in the word. That means you teach your children. That means you fight for your marriage. For those of you who have have that situation, it means you fight to be faithful in what God has given you when possible. But here's the deal. What if Joshua said, I'm not going to fight in the south. I'm going to go and fight in the north. What if he decided to change his perspective and say, you know what, Those are, that's a lot of armies. God will fight for me, but maybe I should go fight up here where the enemy is less concentrated. I will go around them and ambush their cities. That's not what he does. He goes directly to the battle. So if you are part of this church, you know that our church is on a mission. You know that God has called Sierra Vista Baptist Church for a purpose, and that means we cannot run away from the hard work that we are called to do, to share the the word with our neighbors, to encourage people towards righteous living, to living holy lives. But this also doesn't mean that he is going to prosper you in the way that you think, right? Because a lot of people are like, well, I want money, or I want a new car, so God's going to fight for me and get me this new car, right? This is how this text has been abused in the past. No, Joshua is on the purpose of reclaiming the promised land. God has placed him on mission. The Israelites have a purpose. He has promised them rest at the end of this. And so that is what he is doing. So in your service to the Lord is where he fights for you. He doesn't promise you an easy life if you run away from the battle. And if you go the wrong direction. That's not what this is saying. Also, there may be battles you are fighting that you shouldn't be fighting. You may be fighting for the wrong thing or at the wrong time. So just recognize that this is not a blanket statement that God is going to give you everything you want. 
That's not what this is saying. This is saying, get your weapons up and come to battle with us. We are going to war. And what happens? Well, God fights. In verse 10, he says, the Lord threw them into confusion. Who did he throw into confusion? The enemies, the Amorite kings before Israel. Now, I love the grammar in this, and so I'm going to geek out for just a second. But God is the subject throughout 10 and 11. He is the one that does all this, and it's really interesting. So God threw them into confusion before Israel. Did you hear that? God did that. He defeated them in a great slaughter at Gibeon. He chased them through the ascent of Beth Horon. He struck them down as far as Azekah and Mekdah. As they fled before Israel, the Lord threw large hailstones on them from the sky. Do you know who's not in there? Israel. Israel is not the one doing it. Now, Israel is there. Israel is fighting the battle. But who's the most important person in this text? God, right? It's very clear. God is the one who's doing this. He is using the Israelites as a tool to do it, but he is the one that's doing this. And so in our, in our battles that we fight, so often we want to be the center of attention, don't we? Look at all the people that I've brought to Christ. Look how holy and perfect I am. I've, I have the perfect family, or this is what I've done. The reality is, God uses our messes for his own glory. God uses the brokenness in our homes to shine more brightly through us. That we are faithful even when our husband is not. We are faithful even when our children are not. We are faithful even when the government is not. We are faithful. And that's what we're getting emphasized here is we follow God and God fights his battles his way and we get to be a part of it. That's why Joshua is so inspiring to me because he jumps up and joins in the battle. Wherever God is, he wants to be there. And that's what you should be like too. Wherever God is working, that's where you want to go. You want to be part of that and you want to be faithful where he has put you. That doesn't mean you feel this call to missions and you abandon your family and leave them behind and run off to Africa. That's not what this is. But it is looking at where is God fighting these battles? What has he called you to do? And then doing it with faithfulness. So sometimes that looks like changing poopy diapers. When my wife asks me to do something, sometimes I want to roll my eyeballs, right? Like you really want me to go and do this thing. And it's usually like, yes, it would be helpful. I could respond by rolling my eyeballs and being unfaithful, or I could respond in faithfulness and do what I'm called to do, even when I'm tired and I don't feel like it, even when you're tired and don't feel like it. So recognize that God fights for you. He does great deeds. And so we see that he does this. He, he, he chases them. He defeats them. He throws down hailstones on the enemy. I love verse 11. It says, more of them died from the hailstone, the hail than the Israelites killed with the sword. Did you see that? More of the enemy were defeated by God's actions than man's actions. I don't know how much the Israelites were able to see of the hailstones. But what we do know is that these people were defeated at Gibeon. The Amorite kings were defeated at Gibeon. And they ran, and as they were running, God just dropped rocks on their heads. So I don't know if the Israelites saw that and were like, holy smokes, God is powerful. Or if it happened and they were running and they see all these dead bodies and they're like, what is going on here? So sometimes we don't see how God gives us the victory. And that's 
that's the reality is sometimes God does things behind the scenes. And so when you feel overwhelmed, know that you may not know the whole story. And so Yahweh throws down the hailstones on the enemies. You know, I think many of us have neglected this view of God. Many of us have neglected God and Christ in particular as the warrior who fights for his people. Because we, we kind of like a Jesus that's a little bit more tame, don't we? In fact, um, I like to call him the Jesus shampoo commercial that they like to have. He has soft, silky hair, and he just looks like you just want to put your head on his shoulder and relax and take a nap. And that's not necessarily wrong, but he also has a wild side. He has a warrior side, and, and that, that's the God that I turn to when things are bad. Right, Because I do need comfort. We all need comfort from Jesus, meek and mild. But at the same token, we have to have a full, orbed picture of who Jesus is. And he is a warrior. He fights battles. That's the kind of Jesus that, that helps us when our daughter or son is a prodigal and has ran away from the Lord. That's the kind of Jesus that we need when our marriages are falling apart. That's the kind of Jesus that we need when we cannot seem to defeat the sin problem in our lives. That's the kind of Jesus we need when it seems like those who are winning are evil. And when the, the wicked prosper, but the good don't get anything good. That's the kind of Jesus that we need. That's the Jesus that I need. That's the Jesus I pray to when I need Jesus. And that, that means that he is not just a warrior, but he's also a comforter. But he also is not just a comforter, he's a warrior. It's a full picture of who God is. And that's what I want us to see is that this aspect of who God is, and Jesus reflects that, we see how he gets angry at evil and wrong. And we see that a lot in the book of Revelation when he comes with a sword. But this is what we need to recognize is that when all seems lost, we have someone to turn to. And that someone is God. And God is a divine warrior. Now, let's say that a doctor gives you a diagnosis. Let's say it's a little bit scary. He says, you need surgery. And you're like, I've never even heard of this, this, this surgery before. And so you start to get a little anxious. So you're at work one day, and you're, you talk to your neighbor or your, your coworker, and you say, you know, I got this surgery coming up. And he goes, oh, yeah, my, uh, my, my grandfather just had that surgery, and he was good to go in a couple of days. You're like, oh, okay, I'm not so nervous anymore. And then you mention it to your mom. You're like, oh, yeah, your dad had that surgery. Yeah, he was good to go. He was, he was working a day later. And over and over again, you start meeting people who've had the same surgery. Does that give you comfort or does that continue to scare you? It gives you a little bit of comfort because, you know, other people have gone to it. In fact, let's say you get to the doctor and he's about to put you under with the anesthetic. And before he does, he says, you know, I had this surgery last week. Not a big deal. Would you feel much more comfortable with that? So what we know is that Jesus has defeated sin. He has defeated death. He has gone through what we do. That's why we have the book of Hebrews that talks about Jesus, our high priest. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. If we do not have a high priest or we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, that word sympathize, means co-suffer. Jesus has suffered in every way that we have as human beings. He knows what we've gone through. He knows what you are experiencing right now. He knows the fear of death. Some of you have 
aged a little bit in your life, as we all do. But you are at the point now where you are starting to think about, what does my future hold? Recognize that Jesus knew what death would look like. He knew what it was like to have uncertainty. We have a a world that is just continually being bombarding us with messages. Jesus was tempted in every way, it says, which means we can approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may have mercy and find grace to help us in a time of need. If you are in need right now, who do you go to? Who fights your battles for you? Do you fight them yourself? Have you been fighting them yourself? I bet you're exhausted. I bet you are worn out from late nights of tears. I bet you are worn out from all the worry. Who fights your battles is the question that we need to ask. Well, ultimately, the answer is we need to trust the divine warrior to fight our battles. When I preached through Nahum, we saw that there are characteristics of the divine warrior. And I emphasize that comfort can be found in knowing God as a divine warrior, as God who fights. And this is something that you need to recognize. Are you being drawn into a battle? And this is where your small groups or your home group is going to come in, because I'm going to ask, or they're going to ask you, what battles are you fighting right now? And this is, that's your opportunity to get prayer from brothers and sisters in Christ, can lock arms with you and face this battle that you are experiencing. This is what you need when things go sour. You need fellowship. You need a brother and sister in Christ who will walk with you, who will pray for you and will call you out when you are being silly. Right? That's what you need. The second thing you want to know is how can you participate in the battle, individually or as part of a church or as a member of the church. Joshua used all means available to give glory to God. There may be something that you are called to that you are neglecting. I want you to take some time this week to consider that and that your only hope is in Christ, who is the Lord, strong and mighty. The last thing we see, which is kind of a miraculous thing in 12 through 15, is that the Lord answers prayers. Joshua prayed for some specific divine intervention. He asked for a longer day in order to complete the battle. Now, this is a tricky passage grammatically and also exegetically. And as you read it, you can ask the question, first off, how did the sun stand still? The second thing is, there's a lot of theories about what this is about. Some say that it's an eclipse, that actually he's not asking for the sun to stand still as in to stop moving, but to the sun for the sun to rest which means an eclipse is not out of the question because the moon stops and the sun stops according to our, our, our verse here, our poetry. And so they, they say, well, maybe it was just an eclipse and it just let the sun go down a little bit so it's not as hot. And so they were able to fight in the shade and be a little bit cooler. Other people say it felt like it was such a long time. That's why the sun felt. I think it's a miraculous thing. I think the sun stopped and I think the moon stopped and I think God preserved the whole scenario and let it happen. Okay, so that's just my take. Because God created the world, I think he can do whatever he wants, and he can, he can break the laws of nature however he wants and whenever he wants. And that's what I think is happening here. Because it says in particular, there has never been a day like it before or since. Verse 14. I think that's very clear. So the Lord answers prayers. I mean, it makes sense. They need more daylight to break the enemy forces. The five kings are playing right into the hand of God. 
So what looks like a, a, a victory or a, a defeat on the life on the side of Israel is actually a victory because guess what just happened? He has broken the back of the opposition in the south of Canaan. He defeated all five kings in one day. So guess what? Now the land is open for settlement. There's no longer an enemy force in the way. And so what looked like a possible defeat or a really bad battle has actually turned into God's and man's favor. Now the Gibeonites are an interesting character in the story, aren't they? These are the people who were deceitful, who tricked their way into God's good graces, if you will. Yet God still sent Israel after them. He still sent Israel to protect them, even when they don't deserve it. And that's, I mean, that's me. I don't deserve God's love. I don't deserve God's protection. Because I have been deceitful. I have been sinful. But He still cares for me. Even though I may have gotten in the covenant, quote unquote, in a weird way. Right? And that's what we see with the Gentiles. The access to the covenant is different than the normal way. And that's what the Gibeonites have. So they are protected. But then God uses that specifically for the purpose of breaking the backbone in Canaan so that now the southern part of Canaan is open for settlement. They play right into the hands and the armies are destroyed. We see in 12 that, that Joshua asked God for help. It says it's a very particular prayer. He, he prayed for the sun to stand still over Gibeon and the moon over the valley of Ajalon. And the sun did and the moon stopped. And then we have this book of Jeshar where nobody knows what that is or has seen it. Is it possible that it was a, uh, an earlier poetry that re recorded this event or not? We don't know. But what we do know is it's probably a book of poems recounting the deeds of heroes in Israel. And we don't have any copies of that. We see that God performs a one-of-a-kind miracle in 14 through 15. This is one-time thing. This has never happened again. That's why I don't think it could possibly be an eclipse. It's something that is amazing. Now, here is where people get crazy. Verse 14. There has never been no day like it before or since. When the Lord listened to a man. There we go. You hear what people like to do with that verse? When the Lord listened to a man. That means that God wants you to tell him what to do. That means that, that God wants you to do this or that, or, or, or you tell God how to do things. That's not at all what this passage is saying. In fact, that's the opposite of what this passage is. Because look, there's a comma. And when there's a comma, what does that mean? But there's a comma. It says, when God listened to a man, comma, because. That's very important. Because this is an important word in the Bible. The Lord fought for Israel. Do you see the purpose of God listening to man? It was not in order for man to tell God what to do or to tell him what you need. It's because the Lord was already fighting for Israel. And so he got to participate in a miraculous way. And that's something you need to pay attention to. He used Joshua's prayer in his planning, which really brings us to the thing about prayer, doesn't it? Why do we pray? Does our praying change God's plan? Does God have a plan and when we pray, he shifts course because we said some fancy words or an incantation? No, but he does use human beings and their prayers for the accomplishment of his task. And that's important. In his planning, in his preparing, in his 
is providence is a is an old term that people like to use. He knows and uses our prayers to accomplish a mission. So when you pray for someone else to be saved, we have a Calvinistic understanding where if if you pray for someone else to be saved, you're um, you're you're telling God to do something He wouldn't do. So what's the point, right? That's what some Calvinists will say, or some people will accuse Calvinists of thinking. Other people will say, well, the Arminians don't even have a reason to pray. Why would I pray for that person's salvation? God's not going to over, over, overdo his will. And so now we have two sides of the same coin, don't we? Why pray? Well, for the Arminian, there's no point. For the Calvinist, there's no point, so we should just not pray. I think that's silly. And I think it sounds silly, doesn't it? The reality is this, that God uses our prayers for the accomplishment of his tasks. So God may have used your prayers for someone's salvation in order to accomplish that task. You are a tool or a means for the accomplishment of his mission. Just like when Joseph said, what you meant for evil, God used for good, or God meant for good. And when you think about it, whatever we do, God has a plan. And he uses us in his plan, not as a puppet on a string, but he uses us in such a way that it doesn't override our desires and our wills and etc. And so this is an understanding that I think we can all kind of get behind. It's important to pray. So when do you ask for help? It's a miracle that God would even listen to a mere worm as us, isn't it? When we feel overwhelmed and we cry out to God, it would be like a worm crying out to the universe for help. But God listens. And that's the miracle, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the sun standing still is amazing. The, uh, the moon stopping, trying to figure out where astronomically this happened. And people have been trying to research this. And there's been some, I read some articles that were kind of convincing about, you know, times and missing days and um, all that stuff. And, and you, could, you could research that stuff. But what I think is so amazing is that God used a man's prayer for a miracle. So for the church, our people need to be a people of prayer. One of the things I, I want to emphasize to you, and I've been saying this a lot, and so I may have gotten off on the wrong foot with you, but I said, if you want to be part of this church, you need to be involved and you need to do something. And I know that for some people, you're doing something is praying. And that's important. In fact, that's the most important thing. I, I heard a story about Charles Spurgeon, and they, he would always interviewed, right? Everyone wanted to know why he was such a successful preacher. You know, because he was overweight, he had a sweet beard, and he, he was called the Prince of Preachers. Why was he so successful? Why did he have a large church in London? And so he grabbed somebody, and he took him down to the basement, and there the whole church was gathered praying for that Sunday, for that worship service. He said, that's the secret to my success. So you may not be able to serve. You may not have the ability to give money. You may not have the capacity to spend a lot of time in Bible study or teaching but you can pray. And that is invaluable. In fact, that's probably the most important weapon in our arsenal is your prayers. And so I covet your prayers. I want you to pray for me as I preach, as I study, and for my family because we know that we get attacked. But I want you to pray for the church. And I want you to pray for Sierra Vista because this community can be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't have to have people living in misery in the way that they are. They could have joy that passes understanding. Paul tells us in Ephesians that we are in a battle. It's a spiritual battle, to be sure. 
And in the day-to-day grind, you may be experiencing loss, sorrow, difficulty. How can you live in light of the reality of who God is? Does this, this God comfort you? Do you find comfort in knowing that God is a God who fights for you? Do you find hope in that? Because I know I do. So this week, I want you to consider this God. God as divine warrior. What does that mean? Does that mean he is like the God of the Muslims, who seems to be kind of vindictive and kind of a petty tyrant in many ways? Or is this God a God of victory and comfort? Consider that, and then consider how that affects your day-to-day living. And if you go to a home group, that will be some of the discussion that you will be having. Who is this God, and what does it mean to be his people? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word and the comfort that just pours out of it in every surprising passage. Father, it would be so easy to be lost in the the miracles and the the sun standing still, just the magnificent work of your hands. But Lord, you have a purpose. And we get to see aspects of your character that would be missed if we only focused on other aspects and your character. So, Father, I pray that you would be real to everyone in this room, that this this room would be awakened to the glory and the magnificence of who God is, that God who created the heavens and the earth continues to control the heavens and the earth, that he is in charge. And even when the battle seems to be lost, even when the marriage is falling apart, that you still have a plan for that person. There's no irredeemable person in this room that you will save those who you save. And we thank you for your mercy, your mercy upon us who don't deserve it. Father, because we don't. We thank you that we get to be a part of your mission here at Sierra Vista Baptist, that we get to be involved in sharing the gospel to our neighbors, and that you would spark in us a hunger and a thirsting for righteousness, and that we would ask like Moses, show us your glory, and that as we behold Jesus Christ, we see that glory. Be with us, Father, this week as we go through the trials that you have set before us. Guide us and keep us, and help us to always remember the beautiful name of Jesus, the the blood that has been shed and the body that has been broken. Lord, we need you. We desire and long for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.